Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right in the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And this morning, riding the sober train with us, we have an amazing young man from the Navajo Nation, Cyrus Norcross. Good morning, Cyrus. How are you doing? Hey, good morning. And thank you for having me, Drifter. I am really excited about this. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. And you just kind of jumped right out of bed and jumped right on Zoom, didn't you? I did. So you live on the Navajo Nation and you grew up on the Navajo Nation and you have a long lineage of warriors in your family. Let's kind of start off there and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, so I grew up on the Navajo Nation, mostly in Fort Defiance, Arizona. Uh, eventually would find myself in Lucachica, Arizona, which is 45 minutes north of Chinle, Arizona, for people who don't know. And my whole upbringing, you know, I've always been told about my, well, well basically my great-great-great-great-grandpa. I don't know how many times over that is, but always heard stories from before the Spanish came and after the Spanish came and how we were really involved with fighting them. <laughs> so what one of the stories is our original name was actually Gray Horse and on my father's side. And we would um, or he would my my great 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 grandfather, one of the things that he did was there was a Ute raid about to happen and, and the scouts already had, had seen them on the horses coming toward their their camp. And so they got ready, they alerted everybody, they met them head on and ended up ended up finding them and my great great grandpa at the time was probably is eighteen, seventeen, nineteen, somewhere around there. And ended up killing a Ute chief's son. And so the Ute chief's son was riding around on a gray horse and he claimed that as his own. And so after that, everyone started him calling him Gray Horse or the guy who took the Gray Horse or the person who killed for the Gray Horse. So that's kind of where our, our, our name came from. And it just kept going on. I mean, that guy would later on go on to massacre a whole Mexican army. <laughs> so he it was like, a, like they ambushed around, I believe it was 500 Mexican. And they just ended up massacring them like there's probably only like five that survived somewhere around there they just ambushed them in the mountains but to this day that place is called Morbano's Pass so it just continues on like that into oh World War One was when another guy ended up joining his funny story with him was he was joining during World War One, and he actually got sent out to look for Pancho Villa. So he was actually looking for Pancho Villa. And then he got sent to World War One. <laughs> but before that, he his name, because this is how we got our last name, Norcross, was he walked all the way to the recruiter station. So that might have been from either Fort Defiance to Gallup or Fort Defiance to Albuquerque. I'm not really sure which, which, one, which city he walked to. But he got there and the recruiter was like, who are you and what's your name? He goes, my name's Gray Horse. And obviously, this is all in, all, all in Navajo. And the guy was like, well, that's not good. We can't use your Navajo name. We need to have 
an English name. And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't have one. And that's when the recruiter goes, well, how'd you get here? You know, where are you coming from? He goes, oh, I walked here from Fort Defiance. He goes, oh, you know what? We'll call you Walker. Your first name's going to be Walker. And then they started talking and trying to figure out the last name. And the guy, the recruiter looked at him and goes, well, you know what? You really want to join the Army. You could have my last name. My last name is Norcross. You can have it. So then he called, got called Walker Norcross. And then... My grandpa from World War II took on his name. So that, that person gave him his name. So then that's how it started and then so on and so forth up to up to now where I'm where I'm Cyrus Norcross now. That is so cool and interesting. And and your family's been in battles with other tribes, the Spaniards when they were coming through, the Mexicans with the war that probably went on back and forth back then. World War One, World War Two, probably into what Korea and everything else. Oh yeah, so for Navajo culture, we don't just have one grandpa; we have a number of grandpas. So technically, I've had about four grandpas. Two, actually, no, like five. <laughs> one was a co talker, and two were in the just World War Two, and then another two were in Korea, and then I know I had an uncle that I was really close with in Vietnam and then I had a cousin in the Gulf War and then another cousin in the Iraqi War when it first started. You know the tribes that participated in code talking and Choctaw is one of them they're really proud of being code talkers aren't they? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. They are. Oh yeah you're totally correct. My grandpa actual like grandpa wasn't a code talker but he fought in the northern african campaign so he fought he was fighting nazis <laughs> and he was with the third infantry division and rolled up into italy and fought the italians and eventually would get to I, i'm not sure if third idea got to germany or not actually i'm not i'm not too sure but yeah that's that's what he was doing wow that's just all amazing so here you are on the navajo nation and you started drinking around i think it was 14 you were a runner I was so I, I started drinking when I was when I was fourteen, and mostly because I I only started drinking was because my cousin at the time was he was a cross country runner as well, but he was far older than me. And I I think about it now, and I was like, wow, he made me drink. I was fourteen, and I'm probably the same age he was then, like thirty three, thirty four, thirty five, or I'm not sure how old he was at the time. But I mean, I think about that now. I'm like, man, why did he want me to drink so bad at that age? Right, like at the age I'm at right now. Like, I could not see myself hanging out with my niece or nephew who are 14 and like, yo, let's go have a drink. Nah, now that you bring that up, that's what I'm thinking about. But drinking is kind of a big part of probably the men on the Navajo Nation, even though it's illegal to have booze there. Yeah, so technically it's a prohibition on the Navajo Nation. And it's just like... Just like in the 30s, people go and they get they get alcohol and they sell it and they charge it. They charge the prices up. So they have bootleggers out here, and most of the time, wherever you live, people would drive through the nearest city. So at that time, it would be Gallup, and so that was what, that was what my cousin would do, and I and I would drink drink with him, and I started drinking because like we just wanted to cross country 
um, state championship. So he was like, we got to celebrate. And so I, I kind of was like, okay, well, you know, he was in cross country as well. So he, he understands. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll have a beer. And that's what started, you know, that's what started it. And I mean, technically it's not, it's, there's, there's more to it. There's, there's trauma and, you know, shame and all that stuff up at that point not even knowing what it really was that led to heavy drinking but at the time i didn't know that but before that you kind of abstained from alcohol until that event i did i did i did so i i would i would hardly even drink in between those times so only time i would drink is was with with other cousins actually so that, that was really the only time i drank i would have like I would, high school parties weren't really, I would go to them, but I wasn't, I wasn't the guy to known to drink. So I was only drinking like really with family because I was like, okay, well, this is a family, a family thing. So all my uncles are drinking and all my cousins are drinking. So, you know, I'm going to drink too. So that's what it was. So then fast forward, you went into the army around 17 years old, didn't you? So I enlisted at 17 and I didn't, I didn't leave until I was 18, but yeah, that's, that's probably when a lot of good amount of my drinking took place. I I just would, I would go berserk. Yeah, I, I drank way too much. I was really fortunate to have a lot of good leadership who saw potential in me and, I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate to have had them because they, they definitely instilled a lot of who I am today, a lot of their lessons and what they were trying to pass on to me. Uh, that's the person I am today. But at that time, there was, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm surprised I didn't get kicked out of the Army. <laughs> so you went in, at first you wanted to go on a Green Beret, but you were too young, right? And you ended up going as an Army Ranger. I did. I did. So you had to be 21 to be Green Beret. And I was 17. At the time, things in my my personal life were just going haywire. My my family was just out of control. And I really didn't want to be around them. I was just like, man, I just want to get out of here. I want to go someplace far away from my family. I don't want to be around my family. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, though. I, I'm still really close with my mom. So, you know, I'm glad that's, you know, that's always going to be there. Well, you know, I'm going to enjoy that while it's still there. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to leave and I just, I didn't want to be anywhere. Like everyone was drinking, everyone was getting in jail. Most of my cousins were in gangs. Like they were, they were in prison. They were going to get in, thrown in jail. And I didn't want to be around that. I knew if I had stayed that I probably would have ended up joining a gang and that would have been my, my life. And so I was like, I, I want to leave. I'm just going to leave now. So I joined the army. And being a warrior is part of your part of your lineage, and I'm sure that had a little bit to do with it too. It did. I wanted to maintain that lineage of 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 our family, continuing to serve. And so, when nine eleven had happened, so I was like, "Man, I'm going to miss the war." And then, well, fast forward a couple of years, it's still going on. So I just I just joined, and that was really. Proud of it, proud of serving serving as a ranger, going through that whole process and being able to serve with some of the greatest people in the world. You did a couple of tours and you did one in Iraq and what, two in Afghanistan or vice versa? 
I did. So I did one in Iraq and, and two in Afghanistan. Iraq was in 2008. That one was more or less an urban warfare. I was in Baghdad. So we would just roam around and get get missions and intelligence on individuals like high accountants or even high Al-Qaeda members at the time. And, and we would go after these guys and and bag them up and, and <laughs> take them in, really. Yeah, same with Afghanistan. I'm in it working with some with some seals, and got to do some pretty cool stuff. Another one, another deployment was in Afghanistan. I was in Salerno, and I was in Sharona, and then the, another one I was in Kalat. And Kalat was really cool because there was a castle. There was a castle. So this is one of the things I thought was really cool about being deployed. Now, I was in Baghdad. So in Baghdad it was made, I believe created in 700 AD or 725 A, somewhere around there. So real old city. And I, I felt, I don't know what the word is, but I'm kind of a historical geek. So I was like, man, this is, this is amazing to be out here. It's just kind of unfortunate. It was that I had to be at war, but I would just kind of like look around on these, on top of these buildings and just like, look at like the whole place. You can see all these like mosques and you see all these buildings that don't look western at all and i'm just like sitting there on top of these buildings. that's what i would do quite a bit sometimes i'd be see, pulling security and i'm like wow this is a very very old city like this has been here for thousands of years a little over two two thousand years now i believe or no just over a thousand yeah and i was like wow you know and we would just do missions like and bag that afghanistan the same thing on my third deployment there was like i said there was a castle there that the locals would call the castle. That's all they would call it was the castle. And I would go hang out with the Afghan special special commandos, the their special forces, because we we're working working together on these missions. And so I would go hang out with hang out with them and talk to them. And they would tell me, Yeah, there's a that castle was made by Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great came out here and he he built that castle. And there's a tea house on top of that castle. And unfortunately, we, we never got to go in there. I would drive by it, and we would drive by it all the time. And, but I, I never got to go in there because we had our own little our own little area that we were operating out of. So, so, we, so we didn't go in there. The, the Air Force were using it, and I believe it was the Green Berets. They were using that. They're operating out of that, and we were operating just outside of it. So during that whole time, you're carrying a camera around with you, aren't you? So I, yes and no. Yes and no. So my first deployment, I am carrying a camera. Um, and then second deployment, I had my camera. And then I got in trouble for having my camera. So 75th Ranger Regiment is one of those units where we're, we're, we're top tier. So we're a special operations unit. So having a camera is actually, it's... Not allowed. So we're not allowed to actually have it. I never never knew that. So I got in trouble for having my camera. And there's another guy too, but I took the blame for it. And so I I got pretty pretty punished and smoked. Smoked means I ended up doing a lot of physical activities with the with the military. At that time like my leadership was pretty upset. So on my third deployment I didn't take my camera, even though our higher leadership came came around and basically told everyone, you guys are all allowed to have cameras now. This is for your grandkids in the future. 
your grandkids, grandkids can look at you and say, oh, wow, look what grandpa did. And so on that last deployment, I didn't bring my camera. And during this time, how was your drinking? Oh, geez. My drinking was off the walls. <laughs> But it definitely got off off the walls like super hardcore after my second deployment. So I ended up well, it it went down, it went down, and then it went back up. So I ended up going to this leadership school that in Ranger Battalion you had to go to this leadership school called Ranger School, and then after you go to Ranger School, you come back and then you can take a leadership position. I ended up going, and while I'm there. I just had the worst experience ever. Like my my parents had divorced, my uncle died, my grandma died, my girlfriend left me, and I was like, "Man, this is this is really crappy to be in this situation and to be in Ranger School." And as I'm going through, I get to the last phase. So there's three phases. There's what they call bidding phase, which is in Fort Benning, or at the time it was called Fort Benning, and then they have mountain phase where you're walking on mountains, and they have Florida phase where you're walking through swamps. And you're doing operations there on limited amount of sleep and limited amount of eating. And I get to Florida phase and my platoon had just gotten in a huge battle and I wasn't there. And one of our one of one of my squad leaders had gotten gotten killed on that deployment. So I was just you know, all that just really hit me on that. And I was like, man, I need I need to pass this school. If I don't pass this school, I'm I'm gonna be what's the word I'm looking for? I, I'm gonna be looked down upon. I actually ended up not passing that school. I got in trouble. So I actually was on my way to pass it and then I remember vividly some guy ended up putting a tarp up during my during my I wanna call it rotation of leadership and to this day, I don't know why he put a tarp up. And so the, my grader came up to me and goes, yeah, that guy put a tarp up while you were doing this over here. So that's going to be marked off of it. That's a no-go. Which, And I was like, all because of that? So that's what happened. That's what he told me. Not really sure if there was anything else. Um, ended up going back to the leadership. And I, was, I just asked. I was like, you know, I want to. I don't want to go back to Ranger Battalion without my tap. Go ahead and give me day one. <laughs> so I ended up starting day one all over again. And I passed again. And then during our little eight-hour kind of like do whatever you want for eight hours, I ended up um, buying some tobacco, chewing tobacco. And I had some chewing tobacco, and I was just, I was just chewing it. And I left it in my bag. Didn't realize it was in my bag. I thought I threw it away because I just wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to have a little dip in my mouth. So <laughs> I threw it in my bag. And there's a there's an amnesty period. If you guys have any contraband, get rid of it now. And I was so confident that I didn't have it contraband. And here, next thing you know, I I did get rid of the dip. I did get rid of it. It was the the spitter where you spit where you spit into it that was in my bag. And I forgot about it. And I just looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh. I, and it's like, amnesty, period, amnesty period's over. If you have anything now, you're in trouble. And I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I, I didn't even realize I had this 
spit it in here. I went up to them and I was like, hey, I have this in here. Then I realized I have it. Here you go. And I go, all right, grab your bags and step to the side. So basically that means it was done. So between that second and third deployment, like I was just in not a good spot. So when I finally left that school and I got back to my battalion, tabless, by the way, and parents divorced, grandma passed away, and girlfriend left me, right? So one of the things was that if you don't come back with your tab, you will not be able to advance in range battalion. And so more than likely, they were going to kick you out to the big army and you're going to do whatever that they need of you to do. So I was just at my lowest at that point. I was like, man, I don't even care anymore. Like I'm getting kicked out, whatever. So I'm just going to drink because that's the only thing that's happening. I wasn't there with my platoon when they got into that big, big battle. So I'm just going to drink because there's nothing else to do. And I'm just going to go to the big army. And like my, 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 at that point, like I just felt like a failure. I, I really had no idea what I was. I really had no idea what to do at that point. So I just, I just felt like a failure. Like I felt very shameful, felt very guilty. And I mean, even when I got back and I saw some of my other leadership there from different platoons, just telling them like, man, yeah, I, I don't have my tab. They do just give me this look. And I just, I didn't want to be around there. I don't want to be around anybody. Like I just felt so bad and I would just, I would just drink. So my drink got extremely heavy around that point. Um, you know, it's, it's a really, really big eye opener to, to have seen that, to look back at that now and, and to look at my leadership when they got back from, from that deployment. I didn't even want to be around them. I didn't want to be around them. I didn't want to look at them because I was just one. I didn't have my tab. I just got in trouble right when I got back from, from, from that school and I ended up doing something dumb downtown. I don't even remember what it was. And I was like blacked out and I'm having to like stand in front of the, these like captains back then. So I don't even remember what I did. So the drinking was getting you in trouble. It was, it was. Yeah. So I just remember my leadership, like they didn't even my actual leadership in my platoon. They didn't really take any action on me. It was like, you know, I just left it alone, like, you know, whatever. I remember one of them came out to me and was like, what happened? What happened? And I just looked at him and I said, a lot of happened. A lot happened. And so it's like, you know, we'll talk about it later. You know, don't drink. <laughs> just don't drink. I kept, obviously, I kept drinking. But, you know, I, I think a lot of them really understood that, you know, missing that big battle and also just losing someone, it was a big, took a big toll on them too. And so like kind of just interacted with me, you know, it was like, you know, don't even think about it. Stop thinking about that. Like that, I think that's the way they were looking at me, right? And I've, I've spoken to them now, a lot of them, they're like, don't even, don't even think that about yourself. You know, you never were a failure. We all have our trials and tribulations. So that's what they, that's how they look at it back then. But for me, I was like full of shame. I, I didn't want to be around any of those guys. So I ended up just always staying in my room and just drinking, drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And, and yeah, just feeling, feeling bad all the time and feeling like uh, I couldn't amount to anything. 
So that that was that, yeah. So did that carry on after you got out of the army? It did. So I ended up doing one more deployment and then got back out. And then, like I said, I, they were getting, they were letting me go, but I got to choose where I wanted to go. So I ended up going to Colorado Springs. So I went to Fort Infantry Division. So basically, they let you out of the Rangers and put you back in the regular army is what you're saying. Yes. And come to find out, they, they would have never actually done that if I wasn't drinking. They were probably going to send me off within the unit to a more of a support role since I couldn't move on to a leadership position. So that's 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 what was going to happen. But I was continuously drinking. So it was like, hey, man, like we we got to let you go. Like, or we take some sort of judicial action against you. So they were actually doing me a favor by letting me go rather than taking judicial action against me because military judicial action is, is like super serious. So that it'll stay with you <laughs> the rest of your career. But they got to let me choose where I wanted to go. They, they allowed me to choose a, a new MOS. This is when I had the opportunity to actually become a cameraman for the Army. I didn't choose it. I uh, had an opportunity to go what I would call, well, it's called psychological operations, PSYOP. And I had an opportunity to do that, but I decided not to do any of those and to stick with infantry, which I should not have done, but you know, it is, it is what it is. So I ended up going, I chose 4th Infantry Division. My squad leader was really upset with me. He wanted me to go to Italy and I didn't because of a girl. <laughs> and so I ended up going to 4th Infantry Division. That girl ended up cheating on me and I was stuck there. And so, I mean, it just it just repeated everything. Just went back down to it. And at this time, everyone was calling me like, "Oh man, you're you're an RFS Ranger, which means release for standards. You know, you got kicked out of Ranger Battalion. You're not really a Ranger." And so, I didn't I didn't really want to be there either. I didn't really fit in with anybody, and I, I didn't want to be friends with anyone. I, I actually ended up becoming friends with some people, but majority of the time, at that time, I was heavily self medicating. One, because I felt like a failure, really had no idea what I was doing in my life. Like, I felt like my military career was over. And so I never really amounted to my full potential in the military. So I just kept drinking and drinking and drinking. And same thing, I got in trouble again. And those guys, my leadership, I like I said, man, I'm very fortunate to have leadership to have taken care of me because some of those guys were just like, man, like, uh, you know, you, you deserve to get kicked out of the Army. And to this day, I have no idea how I was able to not get kicked out of the Army for drinking. But they were just so, so kind to me. And like, you know, I see potential in you. You have a lot of potential. You just, just stop drinking and, and you'll do great. And that's when I finally got out. So I finally got out, got an honorable discharge, and then was back on a Navajo Nation. So you get back to the Navajo Nation. And this drinking continues. Did you have to bootleg it in or bite from bootleggers? No. I started going to school at the local called Napo Technical University. And while I was there, I was I would just get like, get bored. <clears throat> and so I would just go to I would just I had my car and I would just drive down to the just down the road from the school, probably like thirty miles, forty miles away, just get some drinks that would come back and I would just drink it. So it was like Easier to just buy uh, liquor or vodka instead of bringing like a 12 pack or 24 pack since it was back onto the reservation. So I would go there, 
grab it and then I would start drinking inside and then eventually because it was a dry dry area dry school I got caught drinking and then I got in trouble and then I actually got sent to jail for drinking in school so that's how big of a deal it is on a Navajo Nation so I was drinking in in my room in my dorm room and then I got thrown in jail for that and and then I had to walk back from the jail all the way back to school which is about 12 miles I was walking in my flip-flops. <laughs> I ended up just walking, yeah. Addiction has really left you in some terrible situations, hasn't it? It has. So I, I just kept I kept drinking and drinking. I mean, that's not just it. So I ended up just like drinking to the point where, once again, I, a lot of it, I just felt like a failure. I never felt like I would never amounted to who I was supposed to be. And I just... I let that really, really sink in, and I really, really believe that. And then one of my relationships ended because of drinking, because of who I am, or because of who I was, I should say. <laughs> and so I ended up traveling for a little bit. I took off to Alaska. I was staying there for a while, still drinking there. Standing Rock happened, so this is 2016. I went to Standing Rock. I mean, it was great to be there, but I was just drinking there too. Like I was drinking. I had no idea what I was doing in my life. I just drinking and drinking and drinking. And that's when journalism came. That's when I found journalism. Well, let's talk about that drinking. Was there like a darkness inside you when all that was going on? Oh yeah, oh yeah. There was definitely, definitely darkness going on. A lot of it kind of comes from childhood and and growing up that way and just have just wanting to be around other people who could drink as well was really like all I was like wanting like if you didn't want to drink you're like you weren't cool to me or boring to me and I just I just wanted to be around people who had <laughs> had that same darkness if you will and so yeah that there definitely was a lot of darkness a lot of self-hatred a lot of you know wanting you know wanting to do some self-harm and wanting to be this the way i was drinking was as if how i could be so the person i was when i was sober then i didn't want to be that person i wanted to be the person who was drunk who was talkative who was confident who was able to not have shame not have guilt all that stuff so that's that's how i was rolling around in life i mean so when you were sober you didn't feel like you could talk or you didn't feel like you could be the same person as you believed you were when you were drinking exactly i felt that because i was just such a failure in the military that i you know i didn't deserve to talk to anybody i didn't deserve to be around people i don't deserve i didn't have an opinion i mean one of them was because I missed that huge, huge battle that I, I missed. Not like I felt like I was like you know I can't even call myself a ranger. So like a lot of this, I forced it so far down that I I never wanted to. I didn't want to accept that. So yeah, so a lot of that was was for that. I mean, a lot of it comes from childhood too, dealing with a lot of that you know alcoholism and being surrounded by it all the time, like being called. I mean, just because I was like at that age. My my uncles would always call me stuff, you know, call me a loser. You know, as a kid, you it, it starts to really affect you. So I, I didn't even I didn't even know that 
you know, around that time, that's what was going on. That's what had created this addiction process. Yeah, I'll I'll be abused that alcohol brings along with it. I'm sure if that wasn't there, then things would have been different for the adults that were around you, for sure. So all of this drinking and stuff, you get into journalism school, all of this starts to accumulate, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It does. So I go to journalism school. I actually I went there at the Standing Rock and went to school at University of Arizona. I'm going to school, so it's in Tucson, Arizona. And, man, I... That is probably the worst I've worst I've ever drinking, the lowest of all lows that I've ever been in, and I just I couldn't I could not I just I couldn't be around other people, I couldn't accept myself, I couldn't I couldn't even talk to people. It was so difficult because I just I'm at war and now I'm at Standing Rock and, and I made friends with people at Standing Rock and. And I was like, man, I, I can't be friends with people here. Like, you, you had to me at that time period. I was like, you have had to have gone through some sort of traumatic event to be a friend, to be my friend. Like, I, I didn't want to be friends with anybody else. Like, I actually became friends with military veterans there. That was really like I could really hang out with them, and like I really didn't want to hang out with anybody else. So, I was like, just hiding in this like darkness and i i just would drink consistently like i get out of school and i go and i buy a drink and like that was that i was drinking every single day to the point where i eventually dropped out of school and then i ended up drinking that that was it i would like go wake up go to the store buy some cheap vodka some chips come back and that was that was dinner lunch and that was my that was my drink. It was just I was just buying the cheapest of whatever was available. Like that was at my lowest. And I'm sitting there, f- finding myself, seeking other people to drink with. And you know who I was hanging out with was a bunch of homeless people. I would go walk around, see these homeless people, and I would drink with them, just because they were they were down to drink and no one else wanted to drink around that time. So I was literally started hanging out with homeless people. So this just consumed you, man. Mm, it did. It did, and then eventually, one day I just was like, I woke up. Well, I didn't wake up the night before. I I was drinking extremely heavy. I just started having these like thoughts of, of dying, of you know not wanting to live anymore. And so I was like, man, why am I thinking like this? I had this puppet that I still have to this day, and you know I got this puppet, and he was like talking to me and. I was talking to it as if it was a real person. And then I, I don't, I'm not sure what it is, but, you know, this puppet was like, hey, you know, you're going to be okay, yada, yada, yada. So I, I put a lot of my 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 woes into that puppet <laughs> that night. And so and then I just ended up playing my guitar, and then I passed out, and I woke up the next morning. I was like, man, you know what? I don't ever want to feel like that again. I don't ever want to have those thoughts of of wanting to die, of wanting to just go and jump in front of a train, you know, like I or or just destroy myself, kill myself. I was like, I don't want those thoughts anymore. I, I don't ever want to have those thoughts. So I grabbed every single drink that was in my room in the in the refrigerator, and I dumped all of it. And I was like, I'm never drinking again. I'm never going to drink again. So I dumped everything. 
and then that's when sobriety started <laughs> you know that's just incredible because i've been where you are too where you just wake up and you want to die man you just really want to die and you can't live like this anymore and that darkness and just like accumulated so much it must have been pretty bad that night where that darkness really en enveloped you definitely was it definitely was you decide to get sober and you quit that day i did so funny thing about that <laughs> i couldn't call anybody so at this point i burned so many bridges i burned so many bridges and only one person i could call funny enough i didn't want to hang out with this person at all because he was a sober individual <laughs> and i was like i guess i'll just call that guy and, and, and see what happens and like he was he was there within 30 minutes he was in my place in 30 minutes, gave me a huge hug. and was like, hey, you're going to be okay. He was also in the Army as well, actually. And he had struggled with addiction as well. And so he was like, hey, man, you're going to be all right. You're going to be okay. You know, don't don't let this get to you. You're a good guy. You're going to get this. We're going to get this through just together. And so we talked for a little bit. And he was like, you know what, man? There's the VA program, the Veterans Affairs. They have a program for alcoholics. You should definitely look into it. He's like, actually, I'm going to take you there. Like, let me take you there. So he ended up taking me over there. Went in, self-checked. He goes, hey, man, you know, you're going to be fine. You're going to be good. So, And then he, he left. And so I ended up staying there for about a week. And then I, then I ended up leaving. But during that week, I, I was surrounded by Vietnam veterans, Korea veterans. And I would just listen to, to a lot of these guys talking. And one of the, the Korean War veterans, he was sober for 50 years. This guy was sober for 50 years. And he would come in every day, like he would come in. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't have to stay there, but he would come in and stay for like a week, and then he'd go back home. And he would just tell us, you know, the reason I do it all the time is just to show you guys and to inspire you guys that you can get sober, that you can do this. He's like, I've been sober for fifty years. My life has been amazing. He's like, before I got sober, though, life was horrible. I looked down on myself. I didn't feel good about anything. Because, but. I just want to let you know that it is possible. So I was, I was like, you know, this is like my first day of sobriety that I'm sitting here listening to, to, to these guys. And then, you know, during that week, I ended up getting to know some of these Vietnam veterans. And these Vietnam veterans came up to me like, man, you're getting sober at, at this age now, man, 29, 30 years old. I was like, yeah. They're like, I wish I was your age when I got sober. I'm, I am 70 years old now. And I'm only one year sober. I'm 68 years old. I'm only six months sober. I'm 80 years old. I'm finally one month sober. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. And these Vietnam vets were like, I wish I was your age. Don't ever take for granted your age right now. Don't take for granted the sobriety that you're able to move forward with. And so I took that with me that first week of sobriety and just rolled with it. That was a detox center, wasn't it? It was. So then what happened after that? After that, I packed up all my things, <laughs> left Tucson, went back home to the Navajo Nation, and ended up hanging out with uh, another cousin who got sober. Same cousin, actually, who made who um, basically was like offered me a drink at 14. And so I started going in with the AA, so Navajo AA. And so these AAs were 
very native, based on native spirituality, so Native American spirituality, Navajo spirituality. So they would incorporate a lot of that within AA. So I would go to that, and I would just hear just like old Vietnam, not an old Vietnam veteran, <laughs> just talking about when he was Navajo as well. He was talking going to sweats. He was talking about um, putting up sage, burning sage, Tati Dean, waking up in the morning, really using our culture and into sobriety. And so I, I got the opportunity to hang out with a lot of these people. So a lot of them are older, older folks in there. Like there's maybe like a couple of young people, but that's about it. But it, that's, so that's where I started getting involved in. So you're getting sober. Are you starting to work through the self-hatred? What's going on with that? Are you waking up with that darkness in you now or are things starting to change? So I, I, don't, I don't even really know. At that time period, I really had no idea what 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 I'm doing. I have no idea about sobriety. I'm just going with it every single day. All I know is I don't ever want to drink again. So that's the only thing I have going for me. I have no idea about the shame, the guilt, the negative self talk. I have no idea about any of that. I'm just going with it every single day. Waking up, going to this AA, and you're just showing up, man. You're just like you don't know what's going on, and you're just showing up. That's that's it. That's that's all I'm doing. But back then, you know, I know I I really felt that all my leadership hated me. Yeah, you know, that's what I felt like. I felt like my whole leadership hated me because I hated myself, right, at the time. But I had no idea what any of that was at that time, especially early sobriety. I I had no idea what you know self love was. I didn't have no idea about self acceptance. I none of that. So all I knew was that I just wanted to be sober because I wanted to. I wanted to get my life better. I've seen people who are sober who are doing better at life. So I was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to stick to this. So I did that for a good minute, and then I would eventually take off to North Dakota for a job. So I moved to North Dakota. Some of my friends there, they were all drinkers. And I would go to them in the bars. And I would just sit there with them and, and watch them drink. And this is probably like five months into sobriety now. And I'm back in a bar watching people drink. But it was different because I was like, I don't want to ever drink again. I have no desire to drink. And I would just watch people and I would see them change from this coherent, great speaking individual and be starting to become belligerent. And it was a college town too. So I was in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And I would see all these people, college students, just getting belligerent. I was like, was that, was that how I was? Like, was that how I used to be? Like these college kids, like trying to be cool. Like some of my friends trying to be cool and like making these idiotic moves. And like, like if some of these girls are coming up to me and they're drunk and they're talking to me. I was like, oh my God, you're so drunk. Like, just, I just like you know you need to stay away from me like I had these girls try to like dance with me and they were falling over and I was like oh my gosh and like they're trying to kiss me and I was like man like you need to like back up you're like way too drunk and I'm and I'm like thinking about myself as I'm looking at these people I'm like oh my gosh this is me that was me and like I'm just like I'd help them up and sit them back down and I'm like you know you should you should probably stop drinking <laughs> and that's that's what was going on I, at this point i still have no idea what any of this you know journey of self-acceptance was I'm still talking bad about myself but i'm looking at trying to find myself trying to figure out who is this sober person who who is this sober cyrus and i eventually kind of found a lot of that through through music so 
my big thing has always been, you can talk to anybody who knew me in high school, anyone who knew me in the army, anyone who knew me in college, they'll, they'll always tell you like, man, he, Cyrus always has his guitar. He always has his guitar. He's always singing. And so I, I really started to write down a lot of the stuff that I was going through. So I'd write down a lot of stuff and, and I would sing it or play it. I would go to these bars and I would play it. And singing at a bar was completely different from going to a bar to drink. Like I, I wasn't going there for that. I was going there to to share to share this music for, for people who, who might want to hear it. So that's the way I was seeing it. So I ended up doing that. I ended up going invited to like this little small underground festival and during COVID actually when it was happening. So funny like I got sober during COVID, so COVID was going on as well. Plus, I'm in North Dakota, where it was blizzards all the time. So, really had like no no desire to go and, and drink at all. So I'm just going through the motions of you know what is what is sobriety at this point, and a lot of it was just I would walk away from people who were drinking. Like my friends would start getting belligerent, and I'm like, all right, you know what, I'm out of here. See you guys later. Get an Uber back. So I'd take an Uber back to my place. And you were getting sober pretty much by yourself at this time, aren't you? I was. So I did try to go to AA meetings at, at North Dakota. And man, I just, the places I was going to, a lot of, there was a lot of ego. There was a lot of narcissism. And I didn't want to be involved with that. And I was like, man, you know, hey, if you're if you're not doing the steps, you're not doing anything right. If you're not, you have to do the steps, yada yada yada. You know, you're young, you don't know anything about sobriety yet. And I was like, man, I don't want to be around these type of people. Like, what? I, you know, I, you know, screw all these motherfuckers. And so I just was, so I just did it on my own. I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm done going to AA meetings. So I just started to go and 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 look for myself of what sobriety meant to me and it, it took a while it did take a while to 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 find that but i eventually did so fast forward a little bit to to kind of understanding more more of who i am i started journaling quite a bit and as i'm journaling i'm, I'm learning more about me i'm writing down about who i am i started doing like some little league coaching so i'm hanging out with kids more and they're listening to me about what I'm doing and I'm also trying to be like a positive role model for them. So this is like only still just over a year of sobriety. And I moved back to Navajo Nation. I'm doing like little league stuff. And there was this book. I can't remember what the book was called, but I wanted to be a better coach. I was like, okay, so if I want to be a better coach, what do I need to do? So I'm reading this book. It's talking about essentially it's talking about self-improvement to be a better coach you have to improve yourself if so your so your little mentees understand like oh okay well you're not just coaching you're, you're living by this so i'm like okay well what what do i need to do so i'm reading this book and starting to understand like oh okay by coaching kids like this is what they see and so they see you like this they see you as a positive role model but they also, you know, kids can see more. So it's like, okay, well, you're saying this, but you're not doing what you're saying. I started to really, really look at myself and really started to reflect on who I was back then. So I, I really started to look at who I am, started to understand like, okay, well, you know, am I still very shameful? Am I still very guilty? Like, yeah, I am. But, you know, how do I, how do I address that? 
And so I'm reading this coaching book of like how to be a better coach. And it's talking about, you know, you have to face your, your shame. You have to face your guilt. You have to be accepting of yourself. You have to talk to yourself better. So that way your team can not just hear it, but they can actually feel it. They get that energy from you. So I was really trying to be a better coach. I was like, okay, how do I do this? And I'm I'm still sober. I'm still trying to figure it out. Still early sobriety. Still have really no idea what I'm, what I'm doing, and just just continue to move move forward with with that. And eventually, I found myself again taking off, trying to go back to school, and really. I really don't know who to talk to. I'm not going to AA because I I can't stand AA. I'm hanging around with people who are in my eyes are they're trying to get better. So I was trying to do EMT, and that did not work out because I was going to college at the same time. So I was going to college while I'm going to EMT school. Bad idea. So you're going to college for journalism at this time, correct? At this time, I'm actually going for anthropology. <laughs> so I'm I'm trying to do anthropology. I'm trying to do my EMT studies, and it's just not just not working out. And a lot of it, I think, is well, in early sobriety, you're just trying to do something, so you're not thinking. I think that's a lot of what early sobriety is. You're just trying to get to that next day, that next hour, by immersing yourself in whatever it is that there is, and you're just trying to not think so much about your shame and in your guilt and so i'm just trying to fill that time in with anything so that's that's like that's what i'm doing that's what i'm doing at this point no idea still about you know in any of the self-acceptance stuff i still know no idea what 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 any of it is and i'm, I'm just trying to trying to move along I'm, I'm like finding myself around people who who like to drink and I was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't drink. I'm barely getting two years sober, really don't know what I'm doing. And so that's when I took a job and I took this job into journalism. And it was very interesting. I would end up talking to people. I think that was really cool was I would interview people. I would start interviewing people about who they are, what they do, why they do what they're doing. High school kids, I would be interviewing them about their sport that they're doing. And I'm like, you know, why are you doing this? And, you know, I'm reflecting on myself as a kid of being in high school and I'm listening to them talk about their aspirations. Did you have any experience at being a journalist up to this point? I did. I did. So rewind it real quick. I actually ended up working for a college newspaper. So I did college newspaper for a little bit. And while I was at Standard Rock, I used a lot of my photography from, from Standard Rock as, as, as my portfolio. So then I ended up working at Navajo Times. So that's how I got my job, Navajo Times. So that's that's kind of where, where all that came from. Now come back to this time period. So I, that's what I was doing. So I would I would sit there and I would just listen to these a lot of these people and I started really thinking about the psychology of of people of people of successful people of how people are bettering themselves and I would listen to a lot of these people. A lady who wrote this book and she's like really talking about this book and you could feel this real positive energy coming from her and I'm like listening to her. I'm like wow that's so amazing. I'm talking to you know, all these, you know, young kids. I'm like, wow, that reminds me of myself when I was a kid and, and they're continuing to move forward. And I'm looking, here's something I saw. It was very different from, from my experience. I was like, look at their family, look at that kid's family supporting them. 
I would see these same kids throughout the season and I would see their family all there. But for me, it wasn't even like that. Like for me, it was like my dad was just always getting after me because I didn't do well. Like because I didn't do well to his standard, right? And so I would never even listen to my coach. I was always listening to my dad. I, I was always down on myself on my performance. My dad was always like, that wasn't good enough. That was never good enough. That wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough. You could do better. You could do better. And, and to be honest, I never heard my dad ever say he was proud of me, ever, once. <laughs> and at this point, actually, I forgot to mention, at this point in my life, I actually just cut him out of my life because he was he's still drinking. He's still being narcissistic, still talking badly about my mom. So I cut him out of my life. So I started cutting people out of my life. My cousin, who I said he got sober, I was like, man, how can you say you got sober when you made me drink at 14 years old? And you know, just continue, you continuously have talked bad about me when you were drunk. I was like, you know, why, why do I want you in my life anymore? So I cut him off. I started cutting all these people off, all my uncles, cut them off. So at this point, I'm like, you know, I, I, I want nothing to do with, with my family that's toxic. And now I'm looking at these kids. I'm like, oh my gosh, these kids have a supporting family. I've never had that. My mom was very supportive of me though. But when you hear all your uncles, including my cousin, including my father, who are always talking bad about my performance. It's like, man, well, I don't even want to do sports anymore. I actually didn't. I actually quit sports as well because I, I just got so sick and tired of listening to them. But I'm looking at these kids. I'm like, wow, this is this is what it was supposed to be like. This is what it is. This is how it's supposed to be to be um, an athlete. And I started listening to them, and then I started to interview politicians and politicians the whole nother ball game you, you're listening to them you're listening to how they're they're educated and how they're trying to help out the community in some way and so i actually make it long story short i actually end up interviewing senator mark kelly and he's an astronaut who went to space <laughs> and i i completely botched that that story no idea what i was talking about it was a last minute story i got assigned to it the political reporter ended up i forgot what happened with her but it got assigned to me because i was only, i was the closest person there i was an hour away so i got there and i'm trying to listen and i'm trying to listen to all these policies and procedures of what's going on of this bill that's been in the making for the past 10 years called the infrastructure bill and a the Infrastructure Act or something like that. And I had no idea about anything. So I get there and I interview Senator Mark McCallion. I blew it, man. I blew it like hardcore. And after that, this is why this is why now I'm a very firm believer that, you know, you should learn from your mistakes. I just was like, man, I don't ever want to find myself in that situation again where I don't know anything about what's going on in politics. So I bought so many books, dove into politics, started reading about politics, started reading about policy, started reading about tribal politics, started reading about tribal sovereignty. Started I just, I dove into it and my level started to grow. And as, as I'm reading these books into these minds of these people who have law degrees, who have PhDs, I end up stumbling across more people from other areas like so at this point i really wasn't like even looking at videos of 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 alcoholism i wasn't really watching any of that 
because I was just like, oh, these guys are just AA people again. Like, I don't want to listen to any of these folks. So I'm not really listening to any of this stuff. And so maybe going into my third year and I'm just, I'm just like, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm reading all these books. I've always been a book person. As a kid, I've always was reading books as well. So now it's like coming out of you, like your sober self, like you start to, the things that you used to enjoy as a kid, you start to enjoy them again. That's what I, what I start to realize. So for me, I was starting to enjoy reading books again, just for fun. And I found myself con- like in, enjoying my time reading books right now. And I ended up looking more into like, what's, what else is out there? What more is out there? I was a history person. I was, you know, what, what else is out there? And then I, I bought this book. It was like, you know, how to be, how to be a man. And so I bought it and the book is kind of like a relationship help book, but it's not a relationship book. It's not about that. The guy really just talks about, he goes, you know, if you want to have a good relationship, you need to improve yourself. And so I just started reading this book again, right? And it, the book was all about how you as a person, as an individual, you need to start to go after your goal, start going after what you want to do in life, start to go after your mission. And so I'm reading these books and I'm just like, okay, well, what's my mission? My mission is is this, is journalism. I started to get involved with missing murdered indigenous people, and I would talk to these families who've had loved ones go missing, loved ones go murdered. And I would just listen to them talk. And, and I would really reflect on me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that could have been me. That could have been my mom asking a journalist, where's my son? Where it happened to my son? You know, I, my son got murdered you know, because I was drinking. And a lot of these families you know you're just i'm just looking at them like wow that could have been me and and now i felt this very strong connection with them and so i would really like want to be around them and i helped them out as much as they can because i could have been i could that could have been me right that could have been me who got missing that could have been me who got murdered that could have been my mom there asking asking those questions so I, i really took it upon myself to to help these family out as much as i could and so it's starting to bring this self-reflection on me of like, wow, that that was me. You know, I, I look into that and I start to really kind of get this acceptance of, of who I used to be. So I'm like three years into, yeah, three years into sobriety now. So this has been kind of building though, because you're this coach of these kids. You read the book, How to Be a Better Coach, and that's Be a Better Person so that you can show these kids. So this self-acceptance, even though you didn't know it was happening, it's slowly been growing on you, hasn't it? It's slowly growing, slowly being able to start to care about myself more, to not be so shameful anymore, not to have this guilt with me anymore. It's growing. It's growing. And, and eventually, I just start reading these books. I start to get to the point where I understand what it is about psychology. Before I was like, yeah, psychology is cool, but it's it's meh, whatever, you know, it's a boring subject. But then I really started to under, understand it. I really started to dive into it. Started buying these books on psychology, understanding the human mind, understanding the psyche, and I started watching YouTube channels <laughs> on psychology of how to become a better person. Because I was like, okay, you know, if I want to be a better person, what do I need to do? 
And eventually I start to really start to understand like you need to start facing your trauma, not just face it, but you got to deal with it. You got to face your shame and deal with your shame. You got to face your guilt and deal with your guilt. And I was like, wow, you know, this is different. You, you got to talk to yourself different. I mean, that's where I'm at now, but I'm like just learning about that then. And so I got to this point point where I was in my journalism career and I was like, okay, you know what? I, I don't really want to be doing this anymore. I mean, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. So I, I need, I'm going to take a break from it and I'm going to move to Hawaii. So I'm three years sober. And I'm like, I'm going to go to Hawaii. As I'm reading these books, like, oh, I forgot philosophy books as well. One of the things that came to this really big conclusion, I was like, okay, if I want to change who I am, I have to do things that I've never done in my life. I have to go to a place I've never been in my life. I had to surround myself with people who don't even know me. So I deleted all my social media accounts, moved to Hawaii. I rented this dingy apartment, like horrible apartment, moved in there and got a job as a ramen noodle food worker. So I'm working at a ramen noodle shop. I'm on an island, essentially. And I'm surrounded by water. And it's like, okay, I'm here now. Like, let's see what happens to me if I just do something I've never done in my life. Let me do an extremely boring job that I don't want to do. Let me move to an island where I'm surrounded by water. Oh, by the way, I almost drowned when I was 16 years old. So I need to face that. So, I mean, even in military a lot of those guys probably tell you like, yeah, Norcross can't swim. <laughs> I, I learned how to, I like learned how to swim, but when I first got that, I didn't know how to swim at all. And so I, I was like, you know, I'm going to surround myself with water. I need to be around water because that's what I'm afraid of. I, I almost drowned when I was actually a couple of years into sobriety, actually, not a couple of years, a couple of months in sobriety, I almost drowned. I went to Hawaii and I almost drowned. I went to go visit my friend out there. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm like, man, I have this like very like this strange relationship with water. So I go to Hawaii and I was like, okay, nobody knows me here. And it was very liberating that nobody knows me. Very liberate. Like it completely changes your mind when you go to a new, new environment and you start telling people, oh, I don't drink. And they just accept it. Like, oh, okay. And that's when I was like, oh, I could say that. I don't drink. You know, I don't have to say, oh, I'm sober. I just say, oh, I don't drink. And like, oh, okay. And then I started to really look at myself and I started to really self-reflect. I started to buy all these books about criminal minds. I bought like audiobooks. I'm listening to self-help books and doing this boring job, listening to these people who have actually never left Hawaii, have grown up in Hawaii their whole life, and, and that the job that they're in is the only job that they know, which is a ramen noodle chef, a ramen noodle worker. And here I am, I'm like, wow, I've actually kind of lived a actually pretty cool life so far. And I'm making myself do these boring jobs because I need to understand that mindset. I need to understand a boring mindset in order for me to move forward. So at this point, you're really looking at yourself. Is this where you really start to understand self-acceptance of who you are? Exactly. So why is when the real self-acceptance started? Like up to this point, I understood what trauma was. I understood you know, how to face 
trauma. I didn't know how to deal with trauma. So I was a totally different, totally two different things. And and I'm I'm looking, I'm reading, I'm learning about myself. I'm learning about why I am the way I was, why I was doing things the way I was doing. A lot of it stems from childhood. A lot of it stems from the environment of childhood, of growing up in a toxic environment. You tend to take those qualities, those qualities on with you in your in your life, and you just move forward with that. So like I started to see these patterns like in the military, I was acting just like my uncles were in the military. I was acting like my father around that time of like, oh, you know, life isn't going well. It's gonna have a drink. So like I started to see that. And now in Hawaii, I'm like, okay, what what am I doing? Did you see where you had learned your negative self-talk? I did. I did. So I started to change that. I started to change that. I started to look at how I spoke to myself. I actually got this poster in my room and it, it said, what was it? What was it? It said, I don't remember exact quote it said, but it, it said something along the lines of, you beautiful motherfucker. When you step out this door, get ready to smile. So it was something along those lines, right? I love that affirmation. You yeah. beautiful motherfucker. I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was something along those lines. And so I would look at that every day and I started to understand what self-talk, the positive self-talk was. It eventually got to the point where I was like, wow, you know, I am learning from living this boring lifestyle in Hawaii of how much I enjoy to, to be myself. And I start to seek things that are not things that I've never seeked before as a kid. So I started getting back to the theater started getting back into filmmaking. And so I'm like, man, this is actually what I what I enjoy to do. This is what I love to do. And I'm I'm reading about that. And I wake up every morning and I'm telling myself, today I'm gonna find what I enjoy to do. Today I'm going to be become a better person. Today I'm gonna move forward. Today I'm gonna, you know, yada 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 yada. And I start to talk good to myself. I start to not judge myself so critically. I start to accept the fact that I am improving every day. I start telling myself this. I'm like, you know what? I am not the best person in the world, but I am better than I was yesterday. So I start to say this every day. I start to do all this stuff. And I start to realize that where I was working at in Honolulu was like not the greatest place for me to work at. Like I start to see from reading all these books. And at this time I had changed my major to psychology <laughs> and I start to read psychology books as well. And because from anthropology, I started to read about these monkeys and how these monkeys, you know, came to be because of psychology. It's, it's a whole, it's, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic but eventually led to me into becoming into psychology and i started to read more about psychology abnormal psychology and developmental psychology and i was like oh my gosh this is this is wild this was my upbringing this is why this is like that like this is abnormal psychology you start to look into um, alcoholism and drug addiction so i started buying all these books and self-help audiobooks and i was just like wow you know, I, I, I want to improve myself. I want to be a better person. I want to present myself as, as, as a good person. And, and the people I was working at with at that particular time, a lot of those people, all they would talk about was partying. All they would talk about was chasing girls. And, and that was it. And I was like, every time I would try to sit down with these people and, and talk about 
life, talk about things, things that are going around the world. You know, it, it was just, it was boring. It, it was boring. Like these guys, they just wanted to drink. And I was like, man, that that's all you got going on in your life. Like, that's it. Like you just want to drink and like, that's all. And I would actually talk to a couple of other people at that place I was working at. And they were actually pretty interesting to talk to. So you could hear the the difference between them. And I started to notice the difference between people who wanted, who had this kind of path in life of where they were going and people who were just living, living to exist, you know, two different, two different things. And here I am sober trying to understand the existing part of it like why am i here what am i doing how am i moving forward and so a lot of it is like sitting with my thoughts and accepting those thoughts and realizing that at that time period when i said oh you know i wish i could just die it was a metaphor for the fact that i wanted that depression that drunkness to die I wanted that to be no more, not a part of my life anymore. So now when I hear, you know, something like, oh, I just want to kill myself, I'm always like, you, you don't want to kill yourself. It's something inside of you that you want to kill. Yeah, almost like that person, that drunk person, you want to die, but you want to live as a new person. You're exactly right on that. That's the person I am now is the person <laughs> I wish I could have been, right? When I was drunk, I guess you could say that. It's like, this is a person I aspire to be. I aspire to speak well. I aspire to be around people. I aspire to be this person where people don't mind being around. That's the person I wanted as who was drunk. And I'm that person now, but I'm sober, <laughs> if, that makes, if that makes sense. You know, and the evolution of this, Cyrus, is so cool because you didn't know anything that was even going on in the beginning, which is something that we want to say to everybody out there that when you're just starting out you don't know what's going on and it takes time and you've slowly evolved and didn't even know the person you wanted to be but you've slowly found the person you are and who you want to be yeah i've kind of come to this realization everything takes time i mean everything does as long as you're willing to stay on that positive path of, of self-improvement and, and of shame and of guilt and, and of moving forward. And I mean, at this point now in my life, I'm like, I'm not ashamed to tell people really about being a drunk in the military or, or being just this horrible person that no one wanted to be around. Like I let down a lot of people. I let down so Many people who looked up to me, that's probably the worst one, is people who looked up to me to, to realize that this guy's just a drunk, right? You had these expectations of yourself that you weren't meeting. Yeah, true. Very true. That that was something I, I really actually took a lot on was like, man, I'm a failure. And I I finally started to really just been like, I was never a failure. That was just life. That was just life's way of saying Here's your trials and tribulations, right? Here's your obstacle that you had to get over. Once you get over this obstacle, you're going to be great. You're going to be doing fine. And that's where I'm at now. And I've come to learn this uh, self-acceptance, like accepting everything, accepting all the bad parts of who I am and, and moving forward and being able to present that, waking up in the morning. Like when I have negative thoughts, you know, I do it all the time. I'm like, you know what? I'm grateful I have a roof over my head. 
I'm grateful my mom's still alive. I'm grateful my sisters are still alive. I'm grateful I have a bed to sleep in. I'm grateful I have a working vehicle. And I'm and I'm grateful to be here on another day. I'm grateful I have my animals. I got my pets. Um, I'm grateful for life. I repeat that so many times until I start to feel better again about whatever it is. Because your brain still tries to bring up the negative thinking here and there, doesn't it? It does. It, it's always going to be like that. That's something I think some people don't understand is like, oh, you know why I always keep having these negative thoughts. It's always going to be there. Well, it's it's not that. It's 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 <laughs> what alcohol was. It was a coping mechanism. And that coping mechanism is what we use to deal with your traumas, to deal with that negative self-talk, to deal with all that bad stuff that was going on like that was it that was a coping mechanism like for me now like i just you know i sit there and i'll tell myself and it's like okay they're they're gone like they're not they're never going to go away those negative thoughts are always going to be there it's just how you how you work with them essentially it's like how you create this relationship with your bad thoughts you're actually managing those thoughts now instead of them consuming you mm -hmm. that's right like you start to be like okay that's that's that like you know i i just need to continue to move forward like one of the things i do now a lot of the times is i actually i'll take 25 deep breaths just to decompress if i'm still feeling a little, a little bit out i'll go ahead and i'll do another 25 breaths i'll do that until a point i'm just like okay you know i'm i'm, I'm feeling better i'm doing better and i talk to myself positively every day i actually found this quote i don't even remember what it was but it, this, it was something along the line of don't judge yourself so harshly because if you judge yourself and talk to you in that way that's how you're always going to present yourself so i've i'm always big advocate for you know talk to yourself in a way that you would talk to your kid self if you as a kid was hanging out with you right now and that kid saw you talking badly about yourself because essentially that's what you're doing when you're judging yourself all the time is you're talking to that kid version of yourself and putting that kid down and that's the way i see it so i'm on my phone i have a, a picture of myself as a kid and i look at that picture and i tell myself we're doing good we're doing we're okay if if that kid is not afraid or is willing to hang around me now i'm doing good that kid would not want to hang out with me, you know, a couple of years ago when when I wasn't so great. No way he wanted to be around me. And and you think about that, like, how would the kid version of you look up to you now? Would he be someone that he'd be proud of that he's going to be, or would he be someone that he's, you know, like, oh my gosh, is that is that really my future? I think the young you would look at you now and be very impressed and want what you have. <laughs> I really do. And then here's the cool thing. When you have this self-talk trying to creep in on you, you recognize that now, don't you? I do. I do. So that's what I like to call your, your old self trying to walk back in and slap on those old expectations that you had of yourself. Like, I'm never going to amount to anything good. I'm never going to be a great journalist. I'm never going to be this this you know, filmmaker, you're always going to be that drunk. And that is always going to be there. It's always going to come back. But now you have this new expectation of who you are. 
And so you accept that. You're just like, oh, you know, thank you for coming back. Yeah, that's yeah, you're right. I was a drunk. <laughs> yeah. And and you accept it and you're learning from that and, and you're growing. I, I think that's the biggest word from it is you're growing into this new type of person that you are and sobriety. You're just you're learning to be who you are. You're learning to sit with your thoughts. And I think that's probably the hardest part about sobriety for many people is being able, if you can't sit alone with your thoughts, actually, no, no, no. What leads to relapse is being alone and sitting with your thoughts. And so for me, a lot of that now is like, I sit alone with my thoughts and I, and I ponder about why am I thinking like that? You know, why am I doing that? What, what can I do to change, to change those thoughts? And I mean, some of it is as easy as waking up in the morning and not wanting to fix my bed. Whereas, you know, I'm like, okay, I need to fix my bed. You know, so I'll fix my bed. Okay. I need to clean my room. All right. You know, I don't want to though. Like it's, it's just little kind of like the best way to describe it is, you know, you're, you have your little angel on one shoulder and you have your, your devil on another shoulder. And it's like two people just always interacting all the time. And the best way is just, you know, just like look at that little devil. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, maybe, 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 but no, not anymore. So get up the first thing, make your bed and start off with maybe a gratitude list, huh? Exactly. That's what I mostly do. Actually, I get up and I I fix my bed and I then I look for my cat and then I I just like to have a coffee and I just I just look outside. I just stare outside and and enjoy what what's to come. It's an amazing evolution of your life. So now in your journey, I mean, you just sat and drank in your room, isolated, and you've turned all that around. You have this self acceptance, and you become an award-winning journalist, right? Yes. So a lot of that self-acceptance, there is a self-acceptance and then there's the imposter syndrome. And that is something a lot of folks deal with. And for me, that was something I was like, you know, I'm not really a journalist. And I was like, you know, why? After Hawaii, I was like, why am I talking to myself? I I am a journalist. You know, I I am a journalist. I've done these stories. I've I've written all these stories. I've taken all these photos. I've done all this other stuff of my life. Like I I am a journalist. I I can do this. So I start to change a lot of the way I talk to myself. I talk to myself like, you know, I can, I can, I can, I can. Why can I not do that? Why can't I do that? Because I'm telling myself I can't do that. So earlier this year, I actually was like, you know what? I am going to enter a um, journalism contest and, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. What's the worst they're going to say is no. And <laughs> I ended up getting a letter or not a letter, email. And the email was like, Hey, you just won this award. And I was just like, wow. And that no one helped me. No one helped me with these stories. I did it all on my own because I was just, I threw myself into it. I just immersed myself into those stories. One of the persons who evaluated it was a lady, award-winning journalist, who worked for CNN and was the Pentagon Affairs journalist. So she reported on all Pentagon Affairs. She did a couple of documentaries. She did amazing articles. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she evaluated my my article that I submitted. And I was like, wow, I guess 
I guess I'm a decent journalist then. Like, I guess, I guess I've got something to offer. And it just kind of boosted my self-esteem and really made me understand like the path to success is, is one never, never giving up, always talking positive about yourself and don't judge yourself harshly. I think it was one person who even told me it was like, I want you to look in the mirror and talk to yourself with those negative thoughts about yourself. Say it out loud and tell yourself that. And, you know, a lot of it's like, man, you're a fucking nobody. You're a fucking loser. You're never going to go fucking anywhere. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> right? And it's like, okay. And then that same person goes, yeah. Now, tell your parents that. Tell your mom that. Would you tell your mom? It's like, no. It's like, well, if you don't talk to your mom like that, why do you talk to yourself like that? And so a lot of that also changed as well. So a lot of that is just, you know, just taking that on, looking at your, your trauma, looking at your shame and, and, and wearing it now because now it just depowers all of that. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing it. You know, your, your, your guilt, it's, you know, they're, they're never actually going to go away. They're always going to be there, but you, you have to, you have to be willing to walk with it, work with it, move with it. And because now it, it is a part of who you are and you just have to accept that of yourself. And just by doing one thing every day, showing up and not drinking, well, maybe that's two because you show up and you don't drink. By doing those two things, it's changed your life. Exactly. No, you're you're absolutely right. Just not drinking was, you know, I, I think that's the biggest one. And then just going after whatever it was I wanted to go after. I, I've always wanted to work in a kitchen. So I'm took off to Hawaii and I worked in a kitchen and I did that for a good minute. And I was like, wow, this is really, this was great. This was beneficial to me. It was, to me, it was beneficial because I'd never done it before. And it was something I've always was like kind of romanticized about. And I was like, you know, I, I want to see what, I want to see what that life was. Come to find out it's actually not really a good life, but <laughs> being a cook, uh, it, it's horrible. <laughs> so in your recovery the attraction for the people that you hang around has really changed too, because it seemed like you were drawn back to people that drank a lot first getting sober, but it seems like your attraction has kind of changed to people that want to better themselves. It, yeah, that's, that's actually something that I've kind of found myself in. And I actually tend to avoid people who don't want to better themselves. And like, I, I, I'll talk to people for a little bit, kind of get to know them and then you uh, start to see like okay this is someone i don't i don't want to be around anymore and I, I listen to them like i really listen to how people talk now and you know, i'll start hearing people saying oh my mom told me to clean my room but i didn't clean my room I'm like are you serious like how old are you you know or like i'll hear something along the lines of like girls like for me, that's that's something I've I'm always listening about. It's like other guys talk to me about other girls, and I'm just like, is that is that all you is that your life? Is that it? Like your world revolves around women and girls. Like that's it. Like you, you just want to sleep around. Like that's your life. That's all you're ever gonna amount to. Is that what you're telling me? And like they kind of like do like a little self reflection. Like, well, you know, I want to do this. I'm like, yeah, but you all you do is talk to me is about sleeping around i was like you know i i don't want that like i want to be around people who who want to get things done so 
surprisingly, I, I found myself being surrounded, at least I surround myself. I surround myself with people who have the same mindset, who want to get things done, who want to who want to move and move forward, who have their own personal projects that they're working on, who are willing to collaborate on specific projects together, willing to address issues in the community together. Like I just enjoy being around people where I get and the best way to describe it is man, I, I get drunk off of that. I get drunk off of hanging out with positive people. And I'm, I'm like, man, this is this is such a great feeling to hang around with. I, I get I get drunk off that. Like it's it's an amazing feeling to be around other people with the same mindset who are like, man, I want to do this. You know, the great thing about that too is some of these people, some of them drink, and I just don't like hey, I don't I don't drink. And it's not even like a oh why. It's just, oh, okay. And like these people, their relationship with alcohol is completely different from my relationship with alcohol. Like these people, they can have a couple of drinks and and that's that. You know, it's not that big a deal to me or to them. For me, I was always that person where I, if I had a drink, I had to go out and grab a 24-pack. If I had a drink, I had to have at least a, a fit as well. You know, that, that was me. For, for these people, I'm such a different person. Like they don't even see me as this drunk individual this guy who, who was going roaming around and like hanging out in tucson with with homeless people and drinking with them you know like that they don't see me as that they they see me as this award-winning journalist who was an army ranger who is continuously trying to to help out the community in, in any way that he can you know and it's like they're that's what they see and now those same people who I used to, you know, I guess you could say drink with, like they look at me as someone like, oh, you just think you're better than us now. Oh, you think you're, you think you're all it. You think you're a hotshot. Yeah. And that's a good way to segue into why I mentioned that because a lot of people in their early recovery, there's like a shedding and they get this feeling that they're more alone because they're really not connecting with those people that they were connecting with before you know, the drunk people and stuff, there's like a process that happens where people start falling off out of our lives. And if we just hang on to that a little bit, we're going to see that we're attracted to new people and we're going to be building new relationships. So there may be a time when they're first getting sober, they may feel kind of lonely. We're in that, they're in that middle place where they're losing the old and still building the new. Yeah. I, I think I still, to this day, I still deal with that. I mean, I, I, what I mean by that is that I, I feel that I still haven't found my my crew, my 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 people yet. Like I'm, I'm hanging around with very great people, but they have their own people. I'm kind of the person who comes and goes. You know, I'm that person. Like, oh yeah, you know, Cyrus, he's he's going off and doing this. He's doing this again. But you know, they're not my core group of people. I'm still I'm still looking for my core group of people, and I tied into that is that that loneliness right it's you know being alone is that's the part where people have a difficult time in sobriety is, is being alone because you're trying to stay away from the, all these drunk people but you're trying to hang out with these people that you want to hang out with but you're not quite there yet so you're most majority of the time you're alone and that's where relapse happens the most is because you start to have these negative thoughts you're not willing to address the thoughts that are coming up you're not accepting who you are at that point and so if you're not comfortable being alone sitting alone with your own thought it's going to lead to relapse when you find yourself in that middle ground 
that's a good place to start looking at your life and working on accepting some of the past or whatever it is that may be holding you back. Yeah, that, that that's a great time to really reflect on it and ask us, why am I thinking like that? Why do, Why does that thought continue to pop up? Why do I keep doing that certain behavior? Why can't I sit with myself alone? But those are things that you should really look into and start asking yourself those questions. And like during that time, that's when music for me was, was my, my thing. And that's how I would speak my emotions out where it was, was through music. And from music, I, I actually, well, I, I forgot to mention, I actually, I would buy books on, on musicians and read about these musicians on how, why they got sober. I would read these, um, about these musicians on, on their life. And I'm like, wow, a lot of these musicians, you know, their lives were pretty messed up and, and they got their act together. So one of my favorite bands in the whole world is Social Distortion. And their singer is named Mike Ness. He got sober when he was 29, 28, somewhere around that age. And I was like, man, you know, I listened to him and I'm like, man, he, he was a heroin addict. You know, he's been, been out of jail and he, he just changed it. That was something I kind of looked at and was like, man, he changed his whole life, got sober. Within a couple of years, his band had a gold gold record, right? So they sold a lot of it. And that was Social Distortion, Ball and Chain, Story of My Life. That was that album that like just hit gold record, right? And they're just continually getting better. I mean, even now to this day, like you hear that guy and like he just says it. He's like, Man, I just try to be better than I was yesterday. That's all that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be a better person than I was yesterday. I'm trying to leave this world a better place when I when I when I go. Boom. I love that. And you know, in the scheme of time, it's only been a little over four years for you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really not a long time, but sometimes it feels like it's forever and nothing is going to change, but really it's not that long of time. I've, I've gotten to this point where I'm just really thankful for, for everything that I've done up to this point and very accepting of all the mistakes that I've had up to this point, you know, all, all the jails that I've been in, all the trouble that I've been in. And accepting all that because I wouldn't be the person I am today without any of those mistakes and learning from those mistakes and moving forward. And I'm just like, wow, within four years, this has, this has all happened. You know, I've, I've managed to look at every aspect of my life. I've managed to reach out to people. I actually did do a couple steps from AA. One of them was reaching out to people and apologizing. And I will tell you, out of all the people I apologize, maybe one person, actually, two people, I should say, responded. One person befriended me, but it wasn't more of a befriending. It was more of like, I'm just waiting to see when he relapses again. And everyone else, no response. Everyone else was like, whatever. And that person actually is, I have no idea why but it's just he's just so apathetic toward me does not like he's like yeah i accepted your apology but i'm really just waiting to see you relapse that guy he like i've I've actually tried to reach back out to him and like he was just like he saw that i won an award and he's a journalist as well and nothing he was just like whatever man like 
you know, you think you're better than me now. And I'm just, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you're just like, you're going to deal with that. You're just, you're going to deal with that. And there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to accept that and, and just move on, move forward with it. You know, not everyone's going to be, be in your corner. You just got to continue to move forward and get better every day. When you're able to sit with yourself, the opinions of others, it just doesn't play as big a role as it used to. That's actually something I have come full circle with. Like a lot of times when people would have like some sort of opinion on me or just say something bad about me, I would I would take it fully and immerse it in myself. Now though, it's like I have this like little barrier up. I'm like, oh wow, that's that's what you really think about me. Like, well, well, what that's what does that say about you as a person? Maybe you should look at yourself. And a lot of time they bring up the fact that, well, you used to be a drunk. You used to be like this. I was like, yeah, I used to be. But I learned from all those mistakes. And from learning from all those mistakes, I've accepted all those mistakes, which which means I've accepted who I am, which also means that I am the only person's opinion of myself that matters which comes back down to that self-talk, right? <laughs> like being positive. So it's like, okay, well, that's that's what you think. And there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do to change it. I am just going to continue to talk to myself in a positive manner and move forward. I, I don't need, nor am I willing to hear your opinion about how I used to be, the type of person I used to be. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to continue to move forward because there are better things in life to, to worry about. I've accepted all my mistakes that I've done. I've accepted that I've been to jail. I've accepted all of that. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just moving forward. You know, like, don't worry about the opinion of others. Yeah. We don't have to own their opinion, but they, they think of us. It matters what we think of ourselves. So here you were back in the beginning of this. You were waking up in this darkness. Uh, you wanted that person to die. And that's not you anymore. You have this light in you now. Yeah. But when I wake up, well, I, I'd say the darkness is still there. I don't think it ever fully goes away. <laughs> but Boom. 100%. I, I think you just start to learn to utilize that darkness in your favor now. So I, I, I enjoy it. I, I use it as company. Right. And I use it to get better because now it's, it's that darkness is more like negative. It's like negative talk and imposter syndrome. You have to use that as motivation because that's that's that opinion, right, of, of you, that negative opinion of you, of yourself that you have to overcome. And so that is what, I, you know, is always going to be there. And, you know, going back to a couple of years ago, you know, waking up with it, man, I just felt lethargic i didn't want to do anything i was kind of mopey just at my worst the worst of the worst like now i wake up and it's like i don't got time for that you know i don't i don't got time to sit down and, and listen to these thoughts like you know what like go go <laughs> go mope somewhere else right that's kind of like what it's like it's like i'm telling my thoughts like go mope somewhere else and do you wake up like excited man you're excited to live life now yeah, I do. I've gotten to that point where I'm like, man, I don't have much time. <laughs> I don't have much time because I want to accomplish all these things. I'm like, man, I, I don't have much time to accomplish that. I'm like, I need 
I need to do something today to start to to tackle each one of these little accomplishments that I want to do. That is so huge. That darkness just kept you in the darkness. And now you don't have enough time. And that's what sobriety does to us. There is not enough time in a day for me to get done with everything that I want to do that's ahead of me. And it's just a great place to be. If you were talking to me with somebody right now and they want to get sober, what would you tell them? I would just tell them like, you know what? Take it one day at a time. I mean, there's so much to say. I think that would probably be the main one. It was like, you know, just take it one day at a time. Surround yourself with some good people who support your sobriety and start finding something that you enjoy to do and just continue to do that. I could talk to you like how I was talking to you about all these self-acceptance. I That'd probably be too much for someone <laughs> that's a couple of days like, what? You know, I, I got a, I got a what? It's just, you know, like, hey, man, take it one day at a time, surround yourself with people who support your sobriety, and do something that you enjoy outside of drinking. You know, it could be painting, it could be playing music, because that creative outlet is actually your mind's way of leading out some of that negativity. I would have to tell them, listen to Cyrus's podcast so that <laughs> you can see that this didn't just happen. You just showed up and you didn't drink and you really didn't start learning about yourself into like year two of your journey. So be patient. Yeah, that that's a big one is being definitely being patient. That's something I've learned quite a bit is just being patient. Even even like little small things throughout the day. Like the other day I was I was trying to make this meeting at three o'clock and I stopped at a subway real quick at two o'clock and the line was long, man. Like I looked at the line. I was like, man, it's two fifteen now. I'm still waiting in line. I still haven't got to the cash register. And I'm starting getting like upset. I was like, I'm, I'm about to get upset because I'm about to be I'm maybe late to this meeting. And I started telling myself, you know what? This is the thought that I need to overcome because this isn't on that person. What time is it? It's two still, still considered lunchtime. And the health workers are coming off. So there's it's more health workers, right? They're going to the subway and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at that lady. I'm like, how is my day getting upset at her? Like, well, what is that going to do for her? It's not going to do anything for her. So it's just going to, it's going to make her pissed off and it's going to make her pissed off at the next customer. So I was like, you know, I'm not, not going to say anything, you know, at, just because I'm, I'm not late to my, I'm not late to my meeting. I actually got here early. I got it at two o'clock <laughs> and you know, I, it's only two twenty right now. I'm finally getting my lunch. You know, I, I have time to go to my vehicle and eat and then be at the meeting by two fifty. I was like, okay, you know, th there's no reason to get upset right now. There's like small things like that. That's still, you know, you, you, you got to talk yourself through, you got to ask yourself like, why am I thinking like that? You know, and, and just be able to accept that, situation and be and be patient the more patient you are the more accepting you are of not just the situation at hand but but your situation the the more you're going to go far so tell us a little bit about what you're doing because you're doing documentaries now right so i'm working on a couple of documentaries one of them well this one will be kind of a quick one it's about waste management and addressing uh the waste management issue on the navajo nation that one's not going to start and development for maybe like two years 
because that one, that one's a huge one. It's just, it's huge. The other one is a short documentary going for between 20 and 30 minutes, which will lead into a larger documentary. But that one is more about K9 search and rescue that this Navajo lady started to address the needs for families who are looking for a missing loved one and in, in, on the Navajo Nation. So she goes out and she helps out these families with dealing with missing and murdered indigenous people. And she helps them out to, well, just to find their family members, really. I mean, she she's done phenomenal things. Her dogs have found, like, body parts before. Her dogs have found, like, people who were, like, drunk and just, like, out there. And people were kind of worried about them. Found an older elderly man with Alzheimer's or dementia. I forgot which one. But the guy ended up going off, taking off to Gallup, New Mexico. And so... She told him, was like, hey, my dogs are continuously coming up to the road. She's like, they're not going across. They're not smelling thing over there. They keep coming to this point. I believe he went hitchhiking and went to Gallup. You should look into the places in Gallup. And so it would be until later that they actually had found him. He was in Gallup. So she's been doing a lot of that with her dogs, helping out these families. And I really want to kind of highlight that of what what she's been doing for for the community because what she's doing is is amazing work and it, it should be highlighted on so that's one that's one of the prod documentaries i'm working on and then i'm working on podcasts so that podcast is about native american veterans and coming back into society you know, reintegrating if you want to call it that and then or transitioning there we go transitioning into civilian world and then being of service to the community, like a lot of these people are, are doing good things for the community. So I'm like focusing on on that aspect of it is like how these people are still serving their communities. And then the book I'm working on, it's about my time in Standing Rock. And it's probably one of the most difficult things I've ever written because I'm, I'm talking about who I used to be, who I, this drunk person was, and the reason why I'm drinking, the reason why I went to Standing Rock. Like I had no direction in life. I was depressed. I had no idea what I was doing. And I'm out of the army. I got, I really don't have any friends. So I'm writing about that. And I'm, and I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I am extremely, extremely sad at that point in my life. And as a person, the person I am now writing about that, I'm like, wow, that's, this is hard to write about because I am, I am not in a good time period <laughs> at that point. When that book gets finished, man, we'll have to have you back on and and talk about it. That will be that would be so cool. And I just want to say to anybody out there, you know, if you're sober curious, listen to this podcast and 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 look how it's changed Cyrus's life because sobriety has changed my life, your life, and so many others. Cyrus, I really thank you for coming on here and sharing today. And it's a pleasure meeting you. And hopefully we can partner more because I would love to see more virtual recovery on these reservations because they're so remote. And that's why this lady is out there with a dog. Maybe we can usher in some virtual recovery somehow and let people know that, hey, there's more than just the steps to get sober. There's tons of different ways. And even like with you, you did it on your own. Yeah, that's... That's something I eventually would like to really just focus in on after I'm done with all of my, my projects and the things that I want to do in my life is actually just to come back 
or not come back, but help people out with with sobriety and then be more of an advocate for sobriety and encourage sobriety. I, I think that's actually super important because what sobriety has done for me, my life hasn't been one sloping trajectory, you know, slowly going up over time. Like within four years, my my life just went, I don't know what to call that. It became a curve. If you're looking at a graph, my succession, my life, you know, it just didn't go up like a linear linear straight line. It went up as a as a curve. Like it just com- completely changed in a positive manner. Like vertical. Mm, yeah. You'd be surprised of like how much your life changes. Just, just keep becoming sober. And a lot of people, and they need to see that. They need to understand that. But a lot of people think, okay, well, I didn't drink for a day, you know. Now what? It's like, well, it doesn't really work like that, you know, but. <laughs> yeah, nothing happens unless we abstain from the alcohol. There's no healing for any of that unless we abstain. It starts with abstaining and then just keep showing up and do that one thing. Don't drink, no matter mm-hmm. what. Well, Cyrus, I can't believe we've been sitting here for like two hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's been It's been amazing sitting here with you, man. You're just so inter tanning and <laughs> thank you so much for sharing all this with us and let's start by getting this podcast into your community so others in your community can see what you've done in on your sober journey and maybe with some of these other individuals will say man i want what cyrus has mm, yeah well you know we just gotta gotta put it out there boom let's see what happens <laughs> thank you my brother Yeah, thank you for having me, Drifter, and I appreciate you having me on the podcast, and I wish you the best, and have a long, peaceful life in sobriety. Boom. Thank you so much.